0: Heavenly Father, it's cold, but it's uh, warm enough in here, Father. We're gathered to study, and we're thankful for the opportunity to do that. I'm thankful, Father. Thank you, Father, that I had uh, the energy and time this week to study and prepare. Uh, Thank you, Father, that for each of us in what must have been a busy day, there was uh, a clear path to bring us here today, that you would uh, ensure that we didn't have anything get in our way and anything that disturbed our schedules, and, and we were able to make it. Thank you, Father, for that blessing. And uh, thank you for all the blessings you've showered upon, the teaching ministry and the teaching opportunity that you've made available, uh, not just to myself, but to the others who have made their uh, commitment to supporting or participating in this work. We do pray, Father, that the teaching that takes place here is uh, uh, something you can put to great work and great use in the hearts of those who hear it. Uh, Certainly for those who happen to be here in person, Father, that the ministry would touch them in a way that is personal. and meaningful and and uh, they can see it clearly as being a work of the spirit and from you and then as well father through the the technologies of the day that you've made available we reach a much larger audience we thank you for that gift as well to be counted worthy as a messenger for your word thank you lord for the book of acts as well for the opportunity to see and learn from the men who walk this walk first in the church and we ask you would uh, Not only teach us what they did, but teach us what we will do so we may serve you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's start at the beginning, chapter 10. It's that moment I said last week where Peter is starting to see his heart prepared by God to open up to the Gentiles. Uh, As we learned, the responsibility for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles would rest primarily on Paul's shoulders. In fact, Peter's ministry is primarily to the Jew and always will be through the end of his life. And yet... Peter's unwillingness to reach out to the Gentiles is an issue right now because it's critically important that he be involved in the first stage or the beginnings of a movement of the gospel to the Gentile people. Because as we've said here before, Matthew 16:19 teaches Peter holds the keys to the kingdom that God uh, through, through Christ. It was determined that Peter would be the one, the leader in this early movement who would initiate the opening of the gospel to these three large groups, these three segments of society, first the Jew, then the near Jew, if you will, the Samaritan, but then later the Gentiles as a whole, the, the unreached nations of the world. And we are at the stage now where that third group is in view. But unlike the first two, there is some preparation work necessary in the heart of Peter before that movement can take place. And we're watching how this happens now in chapters 10 and into 11, actually. So chapter 10, verse 1, we read, as I said last week, the first six verses. Let's read down to verse 8 to open tonight. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, or Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius, we saw last week, is a Roman soldier, but more than that, a devout man. And his religious devotion was directed toward the God of Israel, which was, would have been very unique, of course. He's seen giving alms, which are a religious uh, donation, I guess would be the term, and paying respect to the God of Israel, praying continually to him. That pattern of worshiping the true God, but yet with a limited understanding of who this God is, this pattern that you see Cornelius showing here, is evidence of God's handiwork. That he would even have this interest in the God of Israel and enough concern or interest in what this God thought about him that he would show his devotion to that God by supporting God's people and then praying on his own. All of that showing up in his life is proof of God's supernatural handiwork. Paul actually describes this principle in the book of Romans at one point in chapter 2. Briefly, he passes over this point. In, in the course of a larger discussion at that point in chapter 2 of Romans. But it's relevant for us today to just remember these two verses from that book. Romans 2, 14 and 15, Paul says, When the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. In that brief moment back in Romans, Paul is describing the way God will, at times, by his will and by his election, step into the lives of people and bring faith, sometimes without any direct connection to human revelation. Paul, on his road to Damascus experience, is sort of the classic example of that in a very dramatic way. But even in a lesser sense, men throughout history have seen God reveal enough to them that they knew He existed and they knew He expected their devotion and and worship without necessarily having the full picture, the full intellectual understanding of what came with that relationship to that God. Paul, in his passage in Romans, describes a Gentile, as he says, who knows nothing of God's expectations for conduct under the law. They don't have the law. They didn't live in Israel. They didn't have access to the law. They knew nothing of it for all intents and purposes. But yet, you might come upon such a person... And notice that they're striving to please the very same God that you have come to know through the Word. And though they may not know the name of this God or be able to articulate the details of His nature and character in the way we can, given that we have His Word, or the way the Jews would have in their day, given that they had the law, nonetheless, you know you're talking about the same God. There is an affinity there. And once you begin to describe your God to them, they receive it gladfully and joyfully as the one they've been seeking. They don't see it as a different God. They recognize it as their God. Paul says, when you find someone like that, ask the question, where did such a person get the desire and their understanding, to whatever degree they have it, to live in such a godly way? Where did that come from? Paul says, it's proof that the law of God has been written on their hearts. Remember the promise of the new covenant, as Jeremiah gives it in Jeremiah 31, 33? God speaking through Jeremiah says, That he'll make a new covenant with Israel in a future day. And then describing this covenant in verse 33 of Jeremiah 31, God says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. One of the pieces of evidence or one of the facets, one of the parts of this new covenant is this unique promise in which the law of God previously made known only through the scroll, only through the tablets given to Moses. Now, that law and all that it embodies, all that it represents, all that it requires, would be written on the hearts of the people who receive this covenant such that they would have the instinctive desire to do the right things. No longer would it be an external set of rules they try to keep. Rather, it would be a part of who they are. Now, just to be clear, the ultimate fulfillment of this comes once those who have accepted the gospel come into their glorified bodies and they leave sin behind forever. Then this promise is completely fulfilled in their experience. But it begins with a writing of the law upon their hearts. So the occasional Gentile might become a follower of the living God as God would elect. But when that happens, it's no different than the way it happens to all men and women who ever come to that same place. The Lord reveals himself to their hearts by His Spirit, writing His law on their hearts. It's a supernatural process. It's not one dependent on human agency, although God may use human agency to accomplish it when He wishes. And that's certainly the case for the most part today. But once the Lord makes that change, and here's where Cornelius's example becomes so relevant for us today. When that has happened, the Lord has written the law upon our hearts. And in our case, it happens in the moment of our faith. And our confession of of Christ, its result will be to drive us in a new and earnest way to make sense of that change, to understand what has happened to the fullest degree possible. That's what drives Christians or should drive Christians to a study of God's word an interest in things that are spiritual and into an interest of, of what God's word has to say and into fellowship, and into prayer, and into a life of disciplines that are designed to grow us spiritually. That drive is a function of this spiritual change God has worked in our heart. Here, you see Cornelius showing that that desire, that instinct, driven by this newfound faith, in the way that he supported God's people through alms, or that he was seeking God continually in prayer. But now in the scene we're going to find, as we look in the study of chapter 10 today, God transitions this man from just relying on the supernatural revelation that starts the process for him and for everyone, and now moving him to a reliance on human agency to transfer knowledge and fill in the gaps. That's now the, the next stage of development for Cornelius. Understanding, of course, that that process of knowledge transfer happens entirely by the power and and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's not a man-made process, but it's clearly taking place through relationships with other people. God using humans' agency to accomplish his work. And folks, today the process is exactly the same. We have in our culture the availability of the Christian story to such a degree that we have a hard time identifying with a Cornelius A man who's outside his normal comfort zone. A man who only knew what the Roman pagan religions had taught him. And now suddenly he found an affinity for something completely outside his prior experience. And in that position, Cornelius found himself with very few people to turn to except the Jews themselves for some measure of understanding and support. But it still wasn't enough because the Jews that surrounded him didn't know the Messiah either. But there was a Messiah to be known. And so God ensured that the messenger he needed in the way of in the form of Peter is brought to him to complete that connection for him. While we in our experience in this culture typically have already got a lot of background on what it means to be Christian before we may have become Christian. And so at the moment of our conversion, we slide right into the culture that's around us and we never feel like we're out of place. Whether we pursue it or not is another issue, but we have a ready-made safety net waiting to catch us the moment we decide we want to follow Christ. But imagine a man like Cornelius who was not in that kind of a situation, and you get a better appreciation for what God is at work doing here through Peter to catch him, so to speak. And I had an experience this week that was unique. I had a man call this week, and he's a Jewish doctor, and he said, Steve, I've got to tell you a story. And his story was that he had a friend, another doctor who was paralyzed, and was, he was a Christian man who was going to a healing service and wanted this friend of his, this Jewish doctor friend, to accompany him just for support. And the man who I was talking to was this Jewish doctor. He said he'd never been in a Christian church before, but he went to support his friend. And in the course of the service, there was a moment of opportunity for people who wanted to come forward for prayer for any other reason to come forward, and this guy just felt this urge to do it. And came forward. The prayer was not a salvation prayer. It was just a prayer for him in a general sense. They prayed over him, and I don't even know what they said. But he said he came away from that meeting and he's never been the same since he said and he couldn't understand it suddenly he had an interest in the Bible and he said he went to a Christian bookstore didn't even know what to do in the place he just walked in and said I need a Bible and they said ESV and NIV NASB and he said I just stared at her and he said she must have pressed the Jewish guy in the building button behind the counter at that point and he got an ESV he said he didn't even know the difference so he walked out of there and he just started reading it and he said all of a sudden things in the New Testament started making sense to him. He could understand that it seemed sensible. It seemed true. Jesus probably was our Messiah. That, you know, this is actually what really happened. This is a devout Jew. This is a guy that had gone to synagogue his whole life and he knew Hebrew and he knew the Torah. And he, But he was starting to say, all the stuff the rabbis teach us doesn't make any sense, never has. This suddenly makes sense. So then he decided he needed to learn this in a methodical way. So he went to Google and he typed in verse by verse. <laughs> this is December 5th. He starts all this on December 5th. And then... By the time I talked to him this week, he was in chapter 27 of Genesis, having listened to everything before that. And he had heard all the covenants being taught and Isaac on the mountain. And all of that now was in his mind. And he was just effusively praising the teaching, but more just the fact that it was all so sensible. But he said, Steve, I'm calling you because I don't have anyone else to talk to. I don't know what to do with this. All my friends are Jewish. I go to synagogue every week still. I don't know. What do I do next? I said, did your wife go to that service too, by the way? (laughs) He said, yes, and she's been listening to me go through this process, but she's just sort of listening right now. And I said, well, that's good. You know. This is a Cornelius in our culture. This is a man who has no understanding of what to do next, except he knows he believes this, and now what? I just love the story for a lot of reasons. It's, it's always interesting to be there when someone has that experience, right? And in particularly his case, he is the remnant. But he's as far outside the Christian culture as you can get and live in America for the most part he's still going to synagogue every week. And what's funny is his experience and what he says now he feels and sees through the eyes of a believer while sitting in the synagogue is what I remember in a Catholic church, all the ritual, which always felt meaningless, but you did it because you're supposed to. Now he sees the text coming alive and he's recognizing the difference. And it's just that whole awakening process that only the spirit of God can do. Here's the classic example of where no one preached the gospel to the guy. No one made him do an altar call. The Spirit did what the Spirit does. Without all of the externalized mechanistic show that we've attached to it, he became Cornelius for me this week. He adds another element that this gentleman I talked to didn't have to deal with, and that is the persecution that inevitably would come to someone in the Roman authorities who was practicing in the Jewish faith, if he even dared, the way he must have had to carefully dance around that issue in his own life while still having questions that he couldn't get anyone to answer or may have had no one to turn to. And to that kind of a heart, one that's been changed by the Spirit and seeks to understand this change and is looking for God to fill that gap, what does the God we serve do? He pulls Peter, two days walk away, into the scene so that Peter can be the guy to provide him that that information. And I think I was the one to do it for this gentleman. Biggest mistake I think we make is we associate discipleship and growth in our Christian walk with being in a church once a week. Those are just, there's no relationship between those two. There, there can be if you make it so for yourself, if you make an endeavor to use that time effectively. But just the mere fact that you show up promises nothing. Any more on that? if I show up in a bank once a week, I'm going to end up with money. It doesn't follow automatically, but we teach people that. So Cornelius here is getting God's attention through Peter. Verse 9, On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, these are the emissaries of, the, of Cornelius going to Joppa, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, "'Get up, Peter, kill and eat.' But Peter said, "'By no means, Lord.' For I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. The trip from Caesarea, from where these gentlemen left to go get Peter, that's a two-day walk. And this is on the second day. So they've already made their way halfway, and they're into the second day. So they're a few hours from arriving at this point. The sixth hour, in the way they counted time, would have been noon. So this is in the midday. And that was a traditional time of prayer for a Jew. So he's gone to the rooftop probably for privacy and just the chance to get away from whatever was going on in the house. So the roofs of homes were used as a a place where people would gather. So while he's up there, the text says he becomes very hungry. And the sentence construction in Greek would, would suggest extreme hunger. Unnaturally strong, sudden urge to eat comes upon Peter. It would suggest that God himself has inspired that sensation in Peter because of the power of suggestion that it will eventually allow for in the dreaming that he's about to do or the vision he's about to get. With that power of suggestion, then God leads Peter into a trance. And then you've, this is a famous scene, I know, and, and so we can imagine it perhaps a couple of different ways. But as the text describes it, you have a large sheet or literally in Greek, it's called uh, linen cloth is the word in Greek. So a linen cloth could be a big sail is held up by four corners and descends to the earth. And it's not clear what the picture in your mind is here. Some would imagine the four corners just being held up in midair. Others might have imagined that there was actually angels or something holding it, something visible. It's not specified. But in clear terms, though, it's coming from heaven. It's coming down to earth, and the sheet is being used as a canopy of sorts to hold these animals, all kinds of animals here, which, if you take it most broadly speaking, all kinds would mean all kinds to include both clean and unclean animals, all mixed together. Peter is told in this dream, now get up and eat these animals, which because they're living, you have to kill them first if you're going to eat them. The killing and the eating both have relevance here, which we'll see here in a minute. It's not just the fact that he has to eat them. It's also the fact that he would have to kill them in a certain way. He responds indignantly, and here's the classic Peter, right? He says, no, Lord, which are two words that should never appear together in that order. They are self-contradictory, in fact. Uh, by their very meaning. Peter's behavior here is a pattern. It's, it's a pattern you can trace today's past and his experience with, with Jesus, of course. Uh, remember when he heard that Jesus was going to die, he declared, God forbid it, Lord. Another self-contradictory phrase. And then he says, I've never eaten anything that wasn't kosher or that wasn't killed properly. And, and he distinguishes between the two. The language in the actual text is, is not exactly as I quoted. He says, I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. But... That's the suggestion here. The suggestion is that there's both a certain kind of animal he could eat based on the law, and then for those he could eat, there was a certain process for how they had to be prepared. And he has said, I have never eaten anything that didn't follow follow those laws. The way the animal had to be killed was the blood had to be drained out of the animal, which required a certain kind of butchery to get it done properly. If you did not have that process, and if you went outside the the Jewish way of doing things, and you went to the common way of doing things, The process the Jews followed was unnecessarily difficult. In fact, we don't follow that process today. We do it mechanically now. We have machinery that will take an animal and put it down in a very quick way. But nonetheless, it's not done in the way the Jews prescribed, which was that the animal would be held in such a position that the blood would flow out of the body very quickly. There's no provision like that normally. If you were in their day, though, without the mechanical equipment and so on, the way you ended up killing an animal generally was you suffocated them. Right, You strangle them because that's the easiest way to take an animal's life without struggle and without hurting yourself. Farmers still do it with chickens today. Ring a neck. That's the fastest way to put an animal down. But the law specifically prevented that. And you know probably if you've studied the book of Acts already, there's a later point in which a debate arises over what laws, if any, should a Gentile follow if they're going to be a Christian. The only two were these. Sexual immorality and then don't eat blood and don't eat animals that are strangled. It was in this issue of being very... Uh, conscious of the fact that of all the laws, of all the ways you could offend a Jew, there was probably few worse than uh, sexual immorality and the dietary laws. They were the ones that the Jews would give up last. And think about your eating habits. How easily will you change your eating habits? And I don't just mean in the sense of no carbs or something like that, even though that is hard. I'm talking about if you were to travel in a place where they eat things that you and I just don't eat. Cockroaches, worms. What if you went somewhere where that's what they eat? Think how hard it would be for you to change your diet in that way. That's the feeling. That's, that's the gut reaction that Jews had after lifelong training from birth that those things you don't eat. And if you brought people into your house and into your family or into your church who made a habit of eating that stuff regularly, you'd feel repulsed by them, wouldn't you? That's the feeling that you're dealing with here. So it's a very strong gut-level reaction to a behavior that they've been taught has always been wrong, and they were right to do that, to follow that law when it was given to them. But things have changed now. That law has been fulfilled. The purpose of it has been met. That doesn't obligate the Jews to start eating the other things necessarily, but it obligates them to be accepting of it for those who would. And so this is a tough thing for for Peter. But we know the meaning of this is not merely to the issue of the food, right? This This is somewhat symbolic of a bigger problem in Peter's life. But it begins with the food. The ultimate purpose in the message is to create a willingness in Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the unclean of of, of people types. The Gentiles were unclean in the minds of the Jew. Unclean nations of pagans who previously were excluded by law are now by grace to become a part of the family of God. That's God's plan. He intends to implement it. Peter's a means to that in God's plan, but he has to be on board with the plan. Despite all the clear statements and messages and pictures and symbols, Peter says no. And the whole conversation is repeated twice more. There's three of these times when he says no, apparently, and the imagery is repeated and God says, do not consider what is cleansed to be unholy or unclean. Can you imagine having a personal conversation with God in this forum, in this kind of a setting, and uh, arguing with him three times in a row about the same thing? One commentator suggested that Peter may have actually heard Jesus' voice in the course of this conversation. And if so, he would have recognized it from his years on earth and it would have felt more familiar, perhaps. He might have felt more willing to do that, I guess. Not the big movie-style voice of God, from you know, but just Jesus talking to him. I wonder, though, if Peter didn't have memory of his previous conversations with uh, Jesus in similar terms. Remember, uh, at one point, Jesus asked Peter if he loved him three times. And Peter's denial of the Lord three times, of course which itself, interestingly, was preceded by his refusal to believe and believe that, the, that he could forsake the Lord. Remember that? The Lord says, you'll forsake me. No, I won't. Then he does three times. And then later, uh, when he meets him on the shores of the Galilee, he has to be reminded three times that he has to feed uh, the Lord's sheep. And there's this history, I think, of stubbornness when it comes to listening to the Lord that's showing itself still. I mean, the guy was who he was, and it was a struggle for him, like it is for many of us, right? Nevertheless, the Lord made his point. And, and to give Peter fair credit here, you'll see very quickly, he didn't miss the point. Chapter 10, verse 17. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Peter's troubled here, puzzled by what he received in the vision. But while thinking about it, the men from Cornelius arrived. I think when you look at the timeline here, if he went up at noon, it's a two-day walk. And you'll see very quickly in the next section that it's too late for them to leave again. It's near the end of the day. So he's been up on this roof for half a day. And so the vision there you know, took over him in a way that he was up there for an unusually long time, it would suggest, anyway. And then God associates that vision with the arrival of these men in such a close time proximity that it helps reinforce, I think, the message for Peter. In fact, Peter gets a second mini-vision there on the way out the door from this angel, that, from the Holy Spirit, rather, to say, these are the guys I sent that you're going to go away with. Don't be afraid of them. I think part of the reason the Spirit would have done that is these are Roman soldiers, at least one of them is, knocking on the door looking for Peter. That's not a good sign in these days at this point. And it might have been enough reason for Simon the Tanner to try to put him off and maybe say, I don't know a Simon Peter. I don't know who you're talking about. And they're doing that downstairs. And upstairs, God's telling Peter, go on down there. You can go with him. Don't be worried. And Peter shows up and then presents himself as the one you're looking for. It suggests that maybe there had been an attempt to hide him, at least initially. You have to love the dedication of these Roman soldiers in the, to their mission because they deliver the precise message Cornelius asked them to give. They, they gave it perfectly. And Peter receives them, as we're told, and he gives them lodging. That's proof, by the way, that they arrived late on that second day, that they were now too late in the day to set out again for the trip back. So they stay one night, and then the next morning they set out. In, in the text here, it says that some of the brethren went. Later, you'll find out in chapter 11, it's six Christians from Joppa that go with them, for a total of seven when you count Peter. So you have seven Christians who go back to witness the moment in which the Gentiles enter into the gospel. So this is the turning point in the book of Acts, at least one of at least a couple of major turning points. Here is the man who has the keys to the kingdom, and he's about to turn that key for the sake of the Gentiles, who will be, as you know, the largest group, the predominant, the focus group for the church age. These are the people for whom the church is, has been established. And it begins with this centurion. The centurion becomes the man who opens that process. And to show you how monumental this moment is for the church, just consider what it took us to get here from the point of view of what God did. Peter brought the Joppa through a series of circumstances going back several chapters so that he would be within earshot of what was going on in Caesarea. Then an angel sent to Cornelius, resulting in a delegation coming to Peter. had They had to come to him. Peter getting a voice from heaven, followed by the Holy Spirit coaching with him to go and tell him it's possible. I mean, all of these things had to be done just so he would go to one guy as a starting point for the gospel going to Gentiles. And he was a vocal, willing preacher of the gospel at any other time that he's had a chance to do it. But this is what it took for him to get past that difficulty. It continues, though, verse 24. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. So you notice on the following day. So it took two days for him to get back. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? Looking first at Cornelius, his reaction is to worship Peter. And that makes perfect sense, really, when you think about it, because the centurion received his inaugural instructions from an angel. Well, you have to think the angel is sending someone pretty important, but he kind of misunderstands the purpose. And so with all his anticipation, his immediate thought when Peter shows up is to bow and worship. In a pagan culture, Not unusual to see something like that happen. They worship everything from birds to to Caesar to statues. There was really no problem with them worshipping a man if that's what it meant. Peter corrects him, reminds him I'm just a man. I'm not someone you worship. But then he says, I want to also remind you that I'm here at risk. The the point of Peter's statement is not to make himself look good. Uh, That's the first thought that might come to mind is that he's trying to say, hey, you know what? I'm here and I normally wouldn't have anything to do with you. So this is a big deal that I bothered to come into your house. That's not the sense of it, really. The sense of it is Peter is violating the religious rules of the Jewish culture. He could be taken before the Sanhedrin for this, for this act, and they're looking for any reason to, to go after him as it is. So he's taking great personal risk to come into this man's home. And, you know, he might try to do it in, in a quiet, unnoticed way, but the chances of him going unnoticed is unlikely. So he was probably being noticed, and people were probably wondering why he did this. And so he ends it by saying, tell me why I'm here. I took the risk, I made the trip, I didn't object, so why am I here? Let's get to business, in other words. Let's get on with it. And the centurion then responds. Verse 30, Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon, the tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So by his own words, he describes the the whole summary of the events. And he ends by saying, I trust that you've been brought here by God. This has all been orchestrated by him. That's self-evident. So now, you know something he knows I need to hear. Give it to me. Well, I love that. That is the open heart of a new believer. There was a similar kind of invitation in the conversation I had with the gentleman I had. He he knew what had changed at least enough to know he needed someone to explain the details. He felt he had found someone that God himself had directed him to. He was confident that he could put himself at my disposal and hear something from God. And I trust and I hope I did that. In the way that Cornelius presents this here, you see the believer's heart. The thought of throwing pearl before swine is the opposite of this. The receiver versus the skeptic or the scoffer. The one who is prepared to receive, the one who is not even interested in receiving. You can't beat through that resistance by human effort. When it's supernaturally an open heart, you can't help but succeed as long as you're faithful to the gospel, as long as you are faithful to the ministry God gives you. As long as you don't turn it into some kind of thing, something personal and, and fleshly. God has prepared the heart. He's ready for it to be uh, impacted by your words. And so you see, you see that connection here very clearly. There was a missing piece in what he understood. Peter was that, was that missing piece. So Peter responds. And what he does here, and I'll read the long section of his speech, but what he does here, and this is commensurate with the moment, with the significance of the moment. He gives another one of his speeches. The last two we've seen of significance map to the last two moments in which there was a movement of the gospel outward. Generally speaking, you have the one at Pentecost, you have the one before the Sanhedrin, which, if you remember, the one before the Sanhedrin is the one that resulted in the persecution of the church and that drove them out of Jerusalem and into Samaria. So Peter has been involved, at least in one way or another, in this movement of the gospel forward as he is intended to be. And now you have the third of these speeches or or moments of presentation of the gospel to a new group. Acts 10:34. opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism, which John proclaimed, you know of Jesus of Nazareth how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. You you could do worse than memorizing that as your presentation of the gospel, by the way. I like, in particular, in just a passing note here, the affirmation that Peter gives of the special role the apostles play in the presentation and spread of the early church. Jesus was appointed to become visible, he says in verse 40, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand, that is to us. That connects us to that statement I've made here several times before, that the apostles had a special privileged role in the early church, which was accompanied by certain powers, and it was tied to their having witnessed the resurrected Lord. That's Paul's claim as well. And so that is their special designated role in founding the early church. Back to the text itself, and there's certainly not a lot to, I need to repeat here. This is the gospel, and we've heard it said already. But the language in the very beginning is important. In, it's in Greek, of course, but in that first verse, he is actually saying something in Hebrew directly translated into Greek. In other words, it's a Hebrew construction out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord... Your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He's remembering the statement that his own law preached, which is God does not show partiality. And now he's seeing it in a new way, somewhat like that friend of mine, the Jewish doctor. For the first time, what he'd always heard and memorized had a new meaning in light of what its true meaning was, which is that God is not going to be partial only to Jews in his plan for salvation. And on the contrary, he says God welcomes anyone who fears God. And in the Jewish way of saying things, the one who fears him is the one who has faith. we, We would say maybe the one who's saved, to use the more modern term. Anyone who fears him, saved, has faith, is saved, and accomplishes works of righteousness, which is giving evidence of faith. So Peter gives this presentation of the gospel to a Gentile who has shown faith, and by his works, given evidence of faith, And in his delivery of the message of hope, Peter then is effectively using his keys to open the kingdom to Gentiles according to God's purpose and leading. And as you would expect, it it engenders a response. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So this is exactly the pattern we've seen. I think, at least I hope at this point, having done this now a couple times in the early chapters, you're seeing with me the fact that this demonstrative Outworking of the Holy Spirit, which you often hear just summarized as something that was common in the book of Acts or common in the early church. When you really study it, it's not been common. It's happened in some very key, specific moments, and then you hear nothing in between. There's no evidence that it's consistent in everybody's experience. In fact, it's being used here so specifically that you can tell by the reaction of those around that they appreciate its significance. They recognize it means something special is happening. And so even as Peter is speaking, the Holy Spirit falls upon those who were listening. And you notice the effect extends even beyond the Gentiles, right? It says all who were listening. I think that must include maybe even some of the Jewish party, but perhaps not because they seem to be observing as much as anything. To the Jews, they understood the sign because they'd seen it twice before. They'd seen it at Pentecost and they'd seen it with the Samaritans. At Pentecost, it was new for everyone. In the Samaritans' experience, it was new because it meant someone other than a Jew was going to receive the gospel. Here it's new and special because it's going to the least of all to the Gentiles. And with each of these experiences, they've come to understand the meaningfulness of the sign. When God moves the gospel outward into a new group, people do these unusual things. They speak in tongues. It's something no Jew could ever imagined would have happened. And this happens exactly the way the previous ones have had. Peter says, and and looking at this circumstance, he says, we cannot refuse them baptism. And this conversation at this point is important in the way that it helps us keep baptism in its proper context, in its proper role. Cornelius and his household were made children of God by faith in the gospel. The arrival of the Holy Spirit gave proof of their acceptance by God as children of God. At that point, the Jewish observers watching all this happen could only acknowledge what was obvious. That they had to agree that the Gentiles were believers and they had received the Holy Spirit and therefore they must be baptized. The Jews give the reason themselves. Their own reason for not withholding baptism was that they had received the Holy Spirit. You see the connection? We cannot not give them baptism. They've received the Holy Spirit. Water baptism is a picture of spiritual baptism by the Holy Spirit. They've had the greater We must give them the lesser as a picture. There's there's no way not to now. So if the Holy Spirit has arrived, then water baptism is the next logical step. That's what you're seeing expressed in their terms here. But we see that baptism itself didn't make them believers. That's clear enough as well. It was a recognition of their faith. But lastly, it was important. Peter ordered that they be baptized. And it was the means by which Cornelius could join into the church and join into fellowship. So this little scene is just a great vignette or a a little snippet if you wanted to go somewhere quickly to talk baptism to somebody. They're clearly believers first. The response of the Holy Spirit becomes the reason for why they need to be baptized. And they need to be baptized. They're ordered to be baptized. It's not optional, in other words. So it brings the full picture together. Faith first then a, a, an outward demonstration through water baptism, which is required. And that also tells you, by the way, that the, the means of expressing the confession of faith that's biblical is water baptism. The biblical expectation is the spirits arrive, they're clearly believers, let's get some water. So if we were to try to execute that today, the, uh, the order would be at the moment somebody says whatever prayer we think they need to say, the very next thing we do is we get them wet if they're unwilling to get wet in the moment, then nothing really happened. Or we can at least say we need to do this again another time. True faith will have that kind of response if it's presented in that way, if we explain that that's the response that's expected. And by not making that connection for believers, we begin to confuse them as to what happened in the first place. Secondly, we confuse them as to the meaning of baptism. And ultimately, we affect our means of evangelism because we insert, instead of baptism, something less meaningful and unbiblical in its place as the means of demonstrating faith. Altar call, confession, prayer, whatever these other things are we think are good, they're not baptism. They're not prescribed as the display, the the means of displaying faith. Baptism is. It's funny how getting wet shouldn't be a big deal. Baptism shouldn't be a big deal, and yet it's a big deal for people. It kind of shows you that God knew what he was doing when he picked that as the way he would have people demonstrate faith. You'd think they were buying a house or getting married. So, it's such a big commitment. I've got to get wet. It's like you have to get ready for it and think about it for a while and then steel yourself up for it and make a commitment and then go do it, which is not the way the Bible presents the process at all. It's supposed to be the immediate display of what's changed at the first opportunity that you see. And I, I think there's even churches that have baptism classes, aren't there? Giving them the benefit of the doubt, I assume that what they're trying to do is understand who's a believer and who isn't. But you don't see that in the Bible. If someone says they're a believer, go get water. We'll find out real quick if they're sincere. And even if they're not, didn't hurt, you just got them wet, right? But the point is, that's the biblical model. God will sort it out. The reason I make such a big deal out of it is you see, and particularly in studying the book of Acts, it becomes so clear as you study through the book that in those early days, the attention was on getting out the message clearly, not a watered-down gospel, the true gospel, followed by a quick call to action because the action did more than just witness, it, it affirmed to the individual and it became your means of acceptance into the church. The baptism of the believer was the means by which the church received you. If you weren't willing to be baptized, they didn't want anything to do with you because they didn't trust you. It was, it was the way you became a member in their, in their sense of a member, how you became part of the church and fellowship. I'm not one of these people that wants to revert back to an Acts 2 church. and I, I, I think we make more of it than we should. The church is what God has grown it to be today. It, it will change over time. But there are principles that don't change. And I think one of the principles is preach the gospel as it's meant to be preached. And that's always needed. And then to anyone who receives it, you're looking at someone who God has prepared for that message on that day. You don't have to worry about scaring them off. If God's brought them there for that reason, they're going to receive it. You just need to do the right thing by them, which is say, oh, you're a believer. You need to be baptized. Baptized. I don't feel like being baptized. Well, no, that's the requirement. You need to be baptized. You need to get in the water and show what you believe. And that's how we will receive you into this church. Otherwise, what you're telling me means nothing. So let's pray and we'll be, and, uh, go home in the cold. And pray with me. Father, thank you for, uh, the encouraging opportunity this week and ministering to people that uh, we haven't met before and who uh, you've directed into our way. I had an experience like that, Father, but I, I suspect that I'm not the only one. Whether everybody's experience was as perhaps as memorable or dramatic, nonetheless, Father, we know you're always at work, and there's work around us all the time, and I pray we're attentive to it, that we would uh, think more like Peter and consider that we ourselves may be in situations like the one Peter found himself in, that you may be directing us without our knowledge even. And as we appear in the places where we work and shop and, and live, you're putting people in our path who are like Cornelius. We don't have to sell them, Father. We don't have to worry that they'll mock us or that, that we'll simply feel rejection. So Though Those things may happen, we know, but we can also be assured, Father, that when You've prepared someone to receive the Word, then the work has been done, and we have the easiest part. We just have to open our mouths and speak what You've given us to speak. So I pray, Father, that what we've seen in the text tonight would be the kind of reminder that strengthens us and emboldens us to do this more often. And I pray that we would also see the fruit of that work from time to time because it is such an encouragement, Father. Thank you that you would encourage us in that way. And thank you again, Father, that we're here this week. And we pray as well from weeks to come that you would continue in guiding us back here so we can continue to study. And we pray these things in Jesus' name again. Amen.